Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Adrian Redlick, the co-founder and CEO of Merix, which he founded back in 2008. Adrian has had a stellar career in financial services and investment as the head of pension endowment with Merrill Lynch and also the head of Alpha Generation with the Citadel Group, one of the world's largest hedge funds. Adrian's talking to us in this episode about the Merrick's Senior Lending Opportunity, which presents an opportunity for high net worth individuals who can take on some illiquidity to get double digit income by providing first mortgages to property developers. Now, of course, it's really important when listening that you understand that this isn't a recommendation to invest, and that any decision to invest in this sort of product or a similar product should be made in conjunction with an advisor. Also, please take note of the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Please provide your feedback. You can get me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Please remember to rate and share the podcast. Enjoy. Adrian, welcome to Inside the Rope. Uh, thanks for having me today. Not a problem. Adrian, perhaps you could kick us off by giving us a little bit of an understanding of your background uh, and what's led, it, what's led you to be running Merrick's. Uh, yeah, so I've been practicing in finance for 25 years. I spent the first 11 or 12 years of my life with Merrill Lynch in Australia, Hong Kong and New York, uh, where I finished up as the head of pension and endowment strategy um, in New York, um, which led me to work with many of the world's biggest institutions in terms of their asset allocation and how best to execute a lot of those strategies. Um, from there, I uh, moved to work for Citadel, um, one of the biggest hedge funds in the world, based in Chicago, um, where I took a much more active role in the direct running of investments. Um, and then around 2007, decided time to come back to Australia, driven by family commitments, which led me to set up Merrick's Capital um, in conjunction with a number of other partners. And from the outset, with a team of around 15 people focusing on a, a multi-asset um, organization um, and really the drive was that was multi-asset allowed us to move between where we saw the best opportunities um, in both the Australian, Asian and global investment opportunity set. And so we're now into our 12th year of operation uh, and run a little under $2 billion of funds here at Merrick's, which uh, is based in Melbourne. Okay, and one of the strategies I've had exposure to and a number of my clients have is the senior lending uh, opportunity. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about that and uh, the background and genesis of that and the opportunity in that space? Yeah, so senior lending has become our biggest strategy. Um, it's really a strategy that's evolved over the last number of years. Um, and the reason it's only been around for a number of years was the senior lending in Australia was dominated by the four major banks and occasionally some of the regional banks. Um, it was only really around 2015 and beyond as the regulators started to constrict capital um, and put stricter rules around the banks where they weren't able to lend to uh, all borrowers and had to really restrict the size of their book. Um, but because the banks had such a dominant footprint in the country here, there really were a few competitors. And when you had a systematic pullback led by APRA and the Reserve Bank, um, it really created a, a significant vacuum. 
Um, on our estimation, there's a need for approximately $30 billion a year of non-bank lending for commercial customers, so not necessarily for individuals, but for commercial customers, um, and still only you know, maybe 5 to $10 billion of dedicated fund managers in the country um, filling that gap. So when there's a vacuum in capital that's available to any part of the capital markets, you usually get the opportunity to over-earn in that space for a period of time as those high returns attract the creation of businesses and capital, whether it be from domestic sources or offshore sources. And so it's really been that vacuum that's, that's created this really exciting opportunity. Would it make sense maybe just to step back one step here, Adrian, and maybe define senior lending in its uh, simplest form for our listeners who may not have come across sort of asset class or investment opportunity? Yeah, for us, senior lending is, is quite simple. It's a first mortgage, uh, so the most senior secured ranked security in any capital structure. Um, and across the asset class, that can be in a number of different areas, such as corporate, um, real estate, um, other forms of receivable lending. Here at Merrick's, our focus is predominantly on real estate-backed security. Um, so it would be commercial real estate in the form of um, residential apartment developments, office buildings, industrial or agriculture, um, the areas we're exposed to. Um, we're very much focused on the area where we lend and we hold a first mortgage um, as any bank would um, against that underlying real estate. And so we provide a, a mortgage um, to the borrowers. Um, as I say, they're all corporate borrowers in their nature. Um, so it's commercial, wholesale lending. Um, and generally we're providing that for development capital or um, in an area where there's a new acquisition of things like hotel, office um, or agriculture. Um, and that the banks aren't really in a position to step up and lend um, to the level they historically have or just not able to lend at all into that space. And why are the banks not wanting to lend into this space? Um, you, you refer to the APRA regulation, but what are some of maybe the specifics or some examples of that? Yeah, so in, in the most obvious um, area and, or sorry, I should say the most prevalent area that we've seen is that commercial banks used to lend 200 or $250 million to a particular borrower. Um, under new concentration limits, um, they're often only allowed to lend $100 million or less to any individual borrower. And so when you only have four major banks and you have big borrowing groups, real estate borrowing groups, that may have seven, eight, nine hundred million million worth of borrowings against many billions of dollars of real estate, um, and the four banks are having to recede to those uh, less concentrated levels, it leaves quite a big gap. So even if you've got first-class borrowers with highly, um, highly, um, sorry, very solid property base, um, it makes it challenging for the banks to lend just from a concentration limit. That's one area. Um, the second area is that they traditionally have lent in the um, development space such as a residential apartment development where there's pre-sales on those apartments. Um, historically, the banks have lent when developers had 60 or 70% of the debt covered by pre-sales. So that means those pre-sales, when, um, when the building is complete, 
would repay at least 60 or 70 percent of the loan and they would have the residual amount of the building um, to sort of repay the rest of the debt. Um, those rules have now changed where banks will only lend if there's 110 or 120 percent of pre-sales on an apartment building to cover the debt. So it's extremely prohibitive um, and so where we're operating is simply where the banks used to be, um, where there may be 90% or 100% pre-sales on the odd occasion, 70% pre-sales. Um, and we will provide a mortgage that is um, for the construction of that apartment building um, to the tune of around 60% uh, loan to value ratio of the end value of the, the building. Um, so it's when you look at it from a risk return perspective, um, we're getting paid double-digit interest rates at this point in time, um, so equity-style returns, but we only have a 60% loan-to-value mortgage, so we're very much in a more secure, lower-risk part of the cap structure. We also have in, uh, buyers of those apartments who have put down 10% deposits that are going to repay anywhere between 70% and 100% of our loan from the pre-sale. So there's a very defined exit on something like residential development. Um, and that's an area that with many of our investors at first pass, um, they have some concerns about lending to residential development given the nature of the market. Once we step through the dynamics of our senior secured position, I think they realise that not only do we have the, the real estate of security, at a 60% LVR, but we also have a clearly defined exit with many of those pre-sales in place. Um, and even if a number of those pre-sales are to fall over, you know, the, the end position that you'd find yourself in is a very low leverage loan against real estate. So if the property market was to fall 30 or 40%, there'd be no impairment whatsoever in our book. Um, and so being able to lend to commercial real estate or residential real estate where you have so much headroom, but you're getting paid equity risk premium uh, for providing a much lower risk investment, really is a great risk adjuster return in this environment. And Adrian, why aren't the international banks or you know, other non-big four banks um, coming into this area and being active and taking advantage if you're getting double digit returns, call it uh, 12, 13, 14% for these loans, why, why wouldn't they come in and say, well, we'll take a piece of this or part of this if they can provide that capital at attractive rates? Yeah, I, I think um, as with the passage of time and these rates remain where they are, we will see um, more, more capital attracted. Um, we do have quite a number of international institutional investors. Um, which make up the lion's share of our client base and they are being attractive and they're allocating money to managers such as ourselves. Um, but in terms of the foreign banks coming in directly, um, we're seeing it happen in, in a small way. Uh, one of the things that needs to happen in lending, unlike equity investments, is that you, you need a team, a fairly extensive team, that is able to originate the loans, to process the mortgage, to service the mortgage. And so it's not just a question of coming in to the market and buying some listed shares or trading in some bonds. Um, you're dealing in private loans, so you actually need to have a fairly extensive team that includes the likes of lawyers, quantity surveyors, uh, people who assess building contracts, um, the financial analysts that 
enter into the negotiations around each individual loan. And so there's, there's quite an extensive capital formation process that will be replicated. Um, but one of the questions that is constantly asked by the foreign banks of us and foreign investors is how long do you think this will go on for? Is it worth our while setting up in Australia? Um, and so it's really a, a question of will they get a return on their investment in terms of establishing a team, not just a return on the capital that they put in place. Okay, that, that, that makes sense. Um, can you give me an idea of the type of size of the portfolio in terms of numbers of loans and diversification around that that an investor might receive? Yeah, so in, in the Merrick's Capital Partners Fund, um, which is the wholesale fund that most Australian high net worth investors participate, there's currently uh, 26 loans in the portfolio um, and it's something that continues to grow. Um, within that, we have around 35 to 40% of the portfolio is New South Wales focused, a similar amount in Victoria um, and Melbourne. Um, and then we have uh, around 15% of the portfolio, I think, is focused on WA and Perth, and the residual is in Brisbane. Um, so it's somewhat geographically diverse. In terms of borrowers, um, we only have two borrowers, I believe, that have that we've lent to twice. There's very limited concentration risk from any one borrower. Um, and so we have a nice spread across the portfolio, which includes lending against hotels, lending against land subdivision, apartment developments, um, and agriculture. Um, and you know, we're actively working on a number of loans to uh, office developments at the moment because we see that as an area where there is significant demand for office. There is a, a shortage of office, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney, um, and the banks are really pulling back in recent times in that space as well. And, and what's driving that demand, do you think, um, given I, I would have thought with automation and um, sort of digitisation and mobile workforces, um, and you know, see hot desking that the floor space for office was becoming less of a demand. And I'm hearing you saying, well, there's more and more demand for it, even though in Sydney, for instance, you've seen um, Barangaroo come online, et cetera. What's really driving that demand? Well, I think for real estate in general, demand is driven by demographics. Um, so if we look at Melbourne, for example, yeah, Melbourne has gone from a population of 4 million to 5 million in a decade. Um, so by its very nature, you expand the population by 25%. You need to expand all infrastructure and uh, housing um, and office space to a similar magnitude. Even if the demographic shifts are there where people work from home or hot desk, um, you may not require 25% more office space, but you'll still require 15 or 20% more office space. And I think particularly when you look at a market like Sydney, you really have a situation where you're landlocked. Um, availability for development um, is, is challenged. Um, town planning has become more challenged. But where we're seeing an interesting evolution is really these sub-regional markets. Um, and what I mean by that is I'm talking about sub-regional Sydney or sub-regional Melbourne. I'm not talking about um, regional, regional cities. Yep. I'm talking about Parramatta or Camberwell or, you know, people want to work near their home. Excuse me, they want to work near their home. But I wouldn't, I don't want to overemphasize the, um, 
office. The level of office exposure. We'd like to have more because they have often you know, very long-term leases with high-quality tenants. Um, but if you make that comparison, again, if we're lending to 60% loan-to-value against the end value of an office and we're able to achieve relatively high returns, people are buying these offices, the ones that we're funding for development, they're buying the end product um, often on 5 6% yield. We're earning that yield for a much lower risk position in the capital structure. Um, so it's a great place to be. And I think that really just highlights the amount of available capital um, for purchase of real estate, whether it be via REITs, individuals or other structures, it's a well-beaten path. The lending path is, is one that's in, still in its formation in terms of alternate lenders outside of the banks. And Adrian, would you mind talking a little bit to us about how uh, the investment process in terms of sourcing deals, the, the credit process and the servicing of loans and the reporting process, please? Yeah, sure. Um, so we have quite a few origination partners. Um, some of those are quite public um, in the sense we have partnerships with groups like Australian Unity and Pepper. Um, and then we have a whole range of joint ventures um, with smaller intermediate size originators. Um, and so we estimate that we have 25 individuals sourcing loans for us out there in the market. And we think that that is, um, we've probably got outside of the banks one of the largest sourcing capabilities. And part of that is driven by the willingness to create joint ventures rather than to have everything in-house. Um, it allows us to be more selective about what loans we participate in also. Um, so we're not driven by having to feed a machine internally here because we've got um, so many mounds to feed. So we can be a bit more selective. And it's a very important part as being a fund manager as opposed to a investment bank that tries to originate loans. We're very much a fund manager. So we have a wide footprint in sourcing loans. Um, in any one week, we have um, some 15 or 20 loans um, pitched to us by the various sources. Um, it's probably on average, I think we're writing uh, two term sheets a week at the moment. And so we're putting out there at, at this point in time, two term sheets and we're going through then a due diligence process if those term sheets are accepted by the borrowers, um, which generally takes between um, four to eight weeks to go through a process where we review the borrower themselves. Um, we have an extensive um, know your client or KYC type regulation imposed on us by obviously the regulators here, but also the SEC in the US, which is one of our regulators. And so we go through a fairly extensive background check on the borrowers themselves. We then go through an extensive valuation process um, using independent valuers, so sworn valuations on the property themselves. Um, and then we have a team of eight people that go through a review of the individual project, looking at everything from the feasibility of that project, um, the permitting, um, the licenses, environmental, um, and the general quantity surveying task, which assesses the value being spent on building a building or a building that has been constructed to check the underlying value of what we're, we're lending against. So we go through a fairly extensive process of reviewing and um, due diligence on each asset. Um, it generally then takes a three to four week process to enter into a facility agreement 
Uh, we use external legal counsel. Um, there we have uh, a number of tier one lawyers who we work with. Um, so it's a fairly extensive facility document. Uh, each individual facility document is you know, probably several hundred pages long. And that is just reinforcing the fact that these need careful review. Um, and unlike just buying shares or buying a bond, it's very much a detailed process on an individual loan by loan basis. Um, and so once we've gone through that, that process, um, it gets put to our credit committee. Our credit committee is made up by a number of, of people, um, including myself, but including our chief operating officer, Andrew Tarrington. So Andrew Tarrington was the chief operating officer of ProBuild, the second biggest builder in the country. Uh, prior to that, he spent uh, near on a decade with Multiplex, the biggest builder in the country. So just to give you a, a sense, you know, the core expertise on that credit committee is very much focused on the quality of building we're getting, the quality of construction um, and the process there. Because equal to the financial analysis or legal analysis of enforcement is to make sure that the building and underlying product that we're leaning against um, is reflects the value that we believe is there. And, and equally so, if you're leaning against construction, you know, you have to have the wherewithal to make sure that construction's finished and delivered on um, to, to uh, even if in the unfortunate event you have to enforce. Well, that's a very topical issue, obviously, up here in Sydney uh, with the Opal Tower and uh, you know, the subsequent uh, washout and, what, and legislation that's coming through in New South Wales as a result of that. Um, before we move on to the sort of market conditions now, Adrian, one of the things you said early on that intrigued me was uh, the banks were looking for 110% of pre-sales. Can you explain how we can have, I, I would have thought you've got 100% of apartments or units or whatever they are, how can there exist more than 100% pre-sales? Sure. So maybe to, to clarify, and as with any industry, we all have our jargon that gets yeah. bandied around that is one of the barriers to, to entry. But um, when we talk about pre-sale coverage, we're really referring to the percentage coverage of the loan as okay. opposed to the entire building. And yeah. so when a bank requires, they need 120% of their loan yes. covered by pre-sales. Uh, and when we refer to 70% pre-sale coverage, we we'll, may require 70% of the loan covered by pre-sales. Uh, let me contrast that by loan to value against the underlying real estate. So most of us who own homes are very familiar with LVR covenants. Mm -hmm. um, generally, we're operating in that 50 to 60% LVR covenant. So against the end value of the real estate, we, we may lend 60%. Um, but of that 60%, 70% of it is covered by pre-sales. So really, if you do your math, it's yeah, around 40 to 50% has pre-sale coverage. I mean, at the very least, we might be left with 10% against that remaining stock. So 10% of the remaining 50% left. It's a bit of a tongue twister, that one. But, you know, you end up sense. doing I've some the mental math. I think I've got yeah. it. Um, and, and what sort of duration uh, are those loans tending to be for? Our loans are generally anywhere between six months and three years is generally our focus. Um, and part of the driver for that is we're feeling a need for capital in the interim 
as we go through a readjustment period, which we expect probably has five years to run. Um, but if you were to lend at the high rates that we're lending at for an extensive period of time, it's clearly unsustainable. So where we see the best opportunity at this period of time is in that shorter term loan. Um, what it allows us and our investors to participate in is this gap in the market. It means also that we don't have to tie up our money for extensive periods of time. So we're not, I guess, taking a wild sort of guess of what the future looks like 10 years from now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have a relatively liquid portfolio in the scheme of lending. Obviously not liquid when we compare to stock market or to investing in bonds or hybrids. And one thing that investors should realise, they're getting paid a liquidity premium for investing in our style of fund or this style of underlying investment. And so it's important, why do you get paid a premium? Well, in Fundsland, you know, most funds are moved to highly liquid redemption periods, daily trading. Um, and so there is literally billions or trillions of dollars chasing that space to have the ability, such as Coders clients do, to lock up your money for a little bit longer um, allows you to garner a liquidity premium. And so there's no doubt that part of the opportunity set here is having that flexible capital that can be invested for six months to 36 months. Um, and that's one of the reasons we're also earning higher returns than maybe the risk should allow. Adrian, let's, if we could maybe just talk about the present market conditions in real estate and your outlook for them. I uh, was interested to note Domain had caught my eye with an article this morning about uh, clearance rates really uh, popping and, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Um, it seems to be going against the trend and you know, clicked through onto it to get the story and it tells me that clear residential clearance rates in Sydney here were 52%, uh, I think, up from 46, which is way below historical and uh, you know in the fine print was I think about 200 uh, homes going to market which I, I want to say the average or historical during busier times might be sort of five six hundred um, so on, on a really small sample a number marginally up so a lot of our clients generally would be thinking look you know property is a pretty tough space at the moment and the outlook looks reasonably subdued how are you seeing things right at the moment and, and going forward? I think it's unequivocal that sales are slower, um, significantly slower. And I would describe it that we have a pricing problem as opposed to a vacancy or demand problem. We know throughout Australia that vacancy rates are low. They're very low, particularly Melbourne, Sydney. Um, they're low on a residential basis, they're low on an office basis, and they're low on industrial basis. And that really comes back to the demographic story that Australia is experiencing. Uh, so we have good population growth organically here, but we have very good population growth when we include migration. And it's no doubt the driver of the economy. And so we entered in 2012-13, where Australia had underinvested in commercial and residential real estate, very much crowded out by the mining sector. And we've spent five years, five or six years trying to catch up to that underinvestment. I think we're at best in balance and if not a little bit oversupplied in some segments, but we continue to see the demographic story being strong. What we have an issue with or a problem at the moment is the price. Um, at eight times median income, the average house 
is unaffordable under new banking standards. Um, and so that's really what's causing the issues and causing the problems and the slowdown. Um, with banks reducing credit, it makes it difficult for people to purchase or have any certainty of purchasing. So how does that translate? It translates into slower pre-sales in apartment buildings, uh, slower pre-sales in land subdivision, um, slower commercial development. And so there's no doubt we've seen a pullback. But what we do have is we have a significant backlog in a number of areas, such as residential towers that may be 50, 60, 70% pre-sold. We have land subdivision that's 100% pre-sold and they're all awaiting construction. And so it's really the financing piece to deliver that product that's been sold over the last year or two um, that is missing. And so that's creating the, the opportunity. Um, with those sales in place, developers are very keen to get on and, and del deliver them. Um, if they don't get on with it in, the, in short order, those sales, you know, they may miss their, um, their sunset clauses and therefore they'd have to you know, rescind those contracts. So there's really some commercial pressures to continue to deliver on what's been sold and what's, de 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 what's developed. Um, and so that's a driver. Um, so there's no doubt slowing, but as I outlined at the beginning, the sheer volume and gap in terms of lending, where we believe the banks are pulling back, that's what's needed is quite significant. So it's really a supply-demand issue um, in, in our space as a fund manager providing that capital. But I think at the end of the day, you know, we touch on a potential slowdown in housing, whether that's 10% off the peak, 15, 20, or even 30%. We stress test every loan um, that we enter into and the portfolio overall. And I've asked your clients to think about it in the following way. If we lend to 60% to a developer to build apartment buildings in Sydney, um, and there's quite a large part of pre-sales that will see a big chunk of our loan repaid, um, at the end of the day, under the most extreme stress test, we're looking at a residual loan to value against apartments we own or office buildings of 20, 30%, so 20, 30 cents in a dollar. Um, I think if we went to anyone and said you could buy real estate at a 70% discount, it'd certainly be um, seen as very attractive. So with that risk in mind, we think you know, it's still an attractive place to be. Um, we're seeing ongoing demand. It'd be interesting to see as the year progresses or into next year, as those sales that have slowed, um, that there may end up being less demand at that point in time. Um, but we are seeing other segments starting to, to pop up as a real viable opportunity, such as office, agriculture, and the like. Um, but at the heart of it really comes down to the sheer fact that if you can earn 10% plus return, which is well in excess of what equity markets have delivered over a decade or two, um, and you can do that, being uh, at a 50 or 60% loan to value, it's really a compelling opportunity set. And I certainly sleep a lot um, better at night knowing we've transitioned a lot of our equity portfolios over the last two, three years from the high risk equity and equity in real estate to a more conservative lending. Um, and it's really been fortunate that we've obviously found the opportunity to, to generate a good return. Um, as I said, the, the we have a, a fairly full book of loans in the portfolio that Coders clients are involved, which is certainly going to give you certainty for the next year or two with um, 
with that money deployed or committed. So we're fairly comfortable the outlook for the next year or two in terms of generating returns. Um, as we go into 2020, um, we'll have to assess the criteria of, or the outlook for the market, whether there's the demand and the demand at the price that we're, we're asking borrowers to charge. Adrian, I think that's a fantastic place to uh, end the interview. Thank you very much for your time and thanks for joining us Inside the Rope. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.